Hebrews 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in his house. We're going to have a contrast here between Jesus and Moses, and each, each of them have a house. The house is a... I'll show you the verse in the Old Testament that's referencing. And his point now, after having shown that Jesus is greater than the angels, now he's going to show that Jesus is greater than Moses. And he's the one that God promised through Moses and has a more important role than Moses. Remember, Hebrews is written to Jewish people who some of whom were evidently being tempted to pull away from the faith and go back to the Judaism without a Messiah. And the author of Hebrews is warning them not to do that. So the things that they considered important, angels, Moses, the high priest, the temple, the sacrifices, all these things that were important to them, we're going to find out that we have these things in the new covenant only greater. we got a greater high priest, we got a greater message because rather than mediated by angels, it came right from the very Son of God uh, and from the throne room of God. And we have a greater than Moses. So why go back to something lesser? That's the whole point. So let's look at verse 1. Holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle high priest of our confession. I, I can't read this without thinking about the stupid false teaching I heard when I was in Bible college and it's still going around. The word of faith people that believe in the positive confession, they say Jesus is the high priest of our confession, so if you don't confess the right thing, you can't really be the high priest. In other words, you can't do anything except for, for what you confess. Well, it, it's just silly. It's, it's like totally not even trying to understand the Bible. Well, they're, they're, it, in the Greek, what it's saying is, we confess him. He's the one who we, he's the object of our confession. You know, and so we're confessing him as our apostle and high priest. And so the first we're confessing Christ. We're not just confessing whatever we say. You know, I'm I'm healthy and I'm wealthy and I've got everything I want. And if I say it right, then Jesus will be high priest over that. But if I don't say it right, then he can't help me. And that's not at all what this verse is saying. And James says the kid said, you have not because you have not. When you ask, you ask for your selfish uh, ambitions and what you want, not what God wants. You know, there's quite a difference between what you want and what God wants for you. Mm-hmm. I don't like that verse. Well, <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of, it's amazing how many of these false doctrines would just be cleared up just by studying the thing in the original language and see what it says. And this Jesus is clearly the object of our confession. Amen. Amen. Um, so, holy brethren, interesting way of just of calling Christians, and uh, what would make us holy brethren? Faith in Christ for, for his children. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're brothers because we are adopted brothers and sisters. We, it's a generic brethren here. We're brothers and sisters because we've been adopted into the family of God. So how in the world are we holy, though? Because he's holy. Be holy as he's holy. Okay. Yeah. We've been set apart. Yeah. Yeah. The whole book of Ephesians will tell us that we're in Christ. Yeah, right. So in Christ we are holy. So meaning doesn't mean that we are holier than thou. Because <laughs> that's not holy at all. And, and it doesn't mean that we, um, you know, dress different than, than everybody else. That, you know, like some people think holiness was sort of determined in 1890 or whatever. Yeah. And so they don't, there's groups that don't have any zippers on, and um, uh, some of these, what are they called? Well, there's these Hooterites out in... Or what? Hutterites. In South Dakota, the Amish, the Amish and the different, different, yeah, there's different groups that decided that whatever era of history was was right, that's holy. And so then their holiness is determined by external things like how what kind of a hairstyle or what kind of shoes they wear, or whatever. But you can't go down to the store and buy holiness. 
preaching and believing. If they if they're if they're just saying this is how we prefer to live but we don't think God commanded it. Well they're free to do that. I guess if you want to have a horse instead of a car instead of sin. But if you're true Yeah in which case it's not a good thing to make yourself God's lawgiver. Amen. So but there may be some within it that don't say that just they're putting their trust in Christ. But all that kind of stuff just makes it harder for people to understand the gospel. It doesn't help the gospel, it obscures it. Amen. And Amen. it needs to be clear that holiness is by virtue of a relationship with Christ and being in Christ and being forgiven because of the blood atonement and being set apart for God's service. Yes. It's also hard for those that don't know the Lord to come to know the Lord, too. Yes, these holy cloisters are not very evangelistic. They never have been. And the result is very, very bad in the dark ages, so to speak, of history. Anybody that wanted to be holy, they'd, they'd take them, they'd put them away somewhere, away from everybody else in a monastery something like that, cloisterum, and some of those people were the only ones that really were educated. The only people that knew the languages that could study the Bible were hidden away somewhere else, and the mass of the people are sitting in darkness because nobody's preaching the gospel to them in their own language, or even helping them become literate so they can read the Bible. So this idea of holiness of being cloistered away from everybody else, so you're not defiled by the masses out there, is not God's idea. He's, he's, he sends us out into the highways and byways to preach the gospel. And, um, well, the, the Jewish people did that too. They were well, the Essenes did. Essenes. Yeah, the Essenes had, had did the same thing. They they practiced. They're really strange. If, if you want to read an interesting story about them, Josephus has quite a bit to say about the Essene uh, communities. Yeah. And so it's not a new thing, the idea that you cloister away to be holy, but it's not what's envisioned here. It's not what the Bible suggests. That our holiness is based on our, on our relationship with God, not the fact that we don't intermingle with people that need to hear the gospel. And, the, we, and we should never have offenses that aren't needed. The, excuse me, the gospel or the cross is enough of an offense in itself. In, without adding to it by some man-made system. Just a question, Bob. Uh, it seems like in studying history, in, in my own mind, I kind of categorize, there are the people what we read about in the Bible or in history that they went into the wilderness like the Essenes, or those that always had to be at the temple, or um, like the disciples that went out into the world. Mm-hmm. But is it, you know, God could have a calling to some people to be out in the wilderness or always be in the temple or in the church? Or is, is that just totally um, Well, we'd have to think about the book of Acts in the commandments of Jesus in the New Testament. Is there any such thing as a calling to be isolated? I don't know that there is. I don't think there's anywhere in the New Testament where being isolated was a good thing. Well, We're told to go into all the world. How can you love your fellow man as yourself? How can you love him if you're not even around him? That's, you know, that, that's really early in church history. They had the desert fathers. And if you study that in church history, they went, they kept going further out into the wilderness. And then so many people were trying to do that, they'd run into each other, so they'd go further back. <laughs> They kept, they kept running into other people trying to go out there to be holy. But you know what's interesting about that is it never worked. If you, if you, I read some excerpts of the writings of some of these guys, and they got out there and they were just tormented by demons. And this one guy, uh, I think his name was Paul, 
one of the early desert fathers, and it, it didn't work. And then one of the problems is, look at all the things, encourage one another to love and good works. How are you going to do that if you're not around anybody? You know, there's a body of Christ, not just a, some person off in a cave. But Paul went into the desert for a time, didn't he? Well, he went, he went to Antioch. When, yeah, in Galatians. When he was first converted, he yeah. went into the desert instead of before he went into Jerusalem or wherever. Yeah, it says in Galatians. But he didn't stay there. But even Jesus in the desert on the mountain he was tempted. There's no way to get away from Satan. Jesus himself was tempted to jump off the mountain. He went into the wilderness to be real quiet. But was there quietness exactly for him? Satan tempted him three times. There's no escape. And now they've gone out with Christians, and a lot of them, it's a terrible thing, in the quietness of their rooms, isolated away with this new internet system, are getting themselves in trouble with pornography. Can you imagine born again, Zach? No, not highest divorce rate for a little while, born again. So this quietness of getting away, you might as well just get out there and, and be up front with the Lord and let the world watch you. We need the body of Christ. Yeah. I don't know the address, but you know the verse that we're in, in the room, but not out of the world. And also, wherever we go, no matter how hard we try to isolate ourselves, we take our sinful nature to the Right. You can't get rid of it. They tried and tried and tried. They used to, used to beat each other and um, sleep on concrete slabs. and Yeah, literally. They, they try to severe treatment of the body, but if you just read the Bible, it says it doesn't do any good. All right, so you become holy through the grace of God, through the gospel, and our relationship to Christ, all right? The partakers of a heavenly calling. The word partakers here is also used in three four, uh, Hebrews 3.14 and Hebrews 6.4. And the word means sharers. So we're sharing together in a heavenly calling. And we're told here to consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. And consider meaning... Um, what person translated, fix your thoughts on. Consider our apostle and high priest. And in a sense, this apostle and high priest, this is a summation of the first two chapters of Hebrews. Apostle means sent one, literally sent one. And the Gospel of John is thematic that way, about Jesus being the one who's sent by the Father. Okay? Yes? Well, the apostolic age in the sense of the Christ and the Twelve, but um, as far as being under the teaching of Christ and the apostles, that persists all the way until the end, you know, until the Lord returns. When people say, like, uh, missionaries go out there, would they be considered Well, you, you have that distinction, uh, Pete, even in the New Testament. I, I got an email from a guy who wanted to question... Well, I was questioning one of my articles about this, and he said, well, there's not 12 apostles, because they listed maybe 20 of them, people called apostles in the New Testament. Well, but yet they talk about the 12, right? So the distinction is this. There's a, there is Christ and his apostles who are the authoritative ones. And this, that's a unique office. And, it was, and the apostles, in that sense, had no su- successors. This is one of the debates with Rome. Rome says that there are successor, the succession of apostles God in this day. But there are no successors for those apostles. But even in the New Testament, there were sent ones. Barnabas is called sent one. Uh, but not considered apostle like Paul was. So what's the difference? Well, there's this functional terminology, just like the word prophet. The word prophet can be an office or an also can be functional and says anybody who prophesies would be a prophet in the sense of functionally. So yes, a missionary could is a sent one and could be called an apostle in that non-technical sense. But because it creates so much confusion, I would say just use the term missionary so you don't get confused. Now the people that talk about modern day apostles and prophets, technically, and I've debated with them, they say, yeah, People are still sent there. They will find. But they want more than that. They're not satisfied just to be a missionary. They want to be an apostle with authority. 
then they want to be like a new Paul, Peter, and John. And so they're not satisfied uh, with just the, that part of it. So, But Jesus is the ultimate sent one. He was sent, he preexisted with the Father from all eternity. He was sent into human history, born of the Virgin, and lived a sinless life. So he was sent. And here it says he is the high priest of our confession. Our confession is the response of faith to God's action through Christ and um, demands a commitment. We are, of whom, in fact, William, or Elaine translate this, of whom our confession speaks. We speak of Christ. Moses, by the way, who was being contrasted here, Jesus is going to be contrasted with Moses, was held in very high esteem in Judaism. Moses was considered, was a Levite. Did you know that? Moses was a Levite. And so when Jesus was considered a high priest, then Moses was a, he had a priestly function, as you can see in the Old Testament, although he didn't actually go and offer the sacrifices with the, with the other Levites. Could you look up Psalm 99 and verse 6, Dan? Moses and Aaron among his priests, and Samuel among them that called upon his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. So there Moses was called a priest. Yeah. So he was a... Among his priests. Yeah, he was a descendant of, of Levi. So he had a priestly function. And so Jesus is the ascent one and the high priest. And so, therefore, he has this exalted position above all. Okay. Uh, Dean, could you look up Psalm 110 and verse 4? Uh, no Bible. Um, Brian, Haggai 5.1. Judith, Ephesians 4.4. 4. Joe, 2 Thessalonians 2.14. And Dennis, 2 Timothy 1.9. 2 Timothy 1.9. Okay, Psalm 110 and verse 4. For the Lord has sworn and will not repent. <coughs> Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's talking about Jesus Christ. Psalm 110 is Messianic. And actually, Ryan preached on that not too long ago. The Jesus is the eternal high priest. Haggai 5.1. Haggai 5.1. There's no five. Oh, well, what am I doing then? There's no five chapters in Haggai? Not in my There's two. <laughs> I think I wrote it down here. What's two one? Uh, what's two one or two five? I, I don't know. Okay, two five. <laughs> According to the promise that I commented, with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit stands and abides in the midst of you, fear not. I, I don't know what I, I wrote it down wrong, obviously. Maybe I have it in the wrong book. Maybe it was Hosea or something. Well, let's, we'll go on. Ephesians 4.4. 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one holy body. Yeah, that's us, uh, the heavenly calling cross-reference to that. I was just testing it, uh, Brian, give you one verse that wasn't in the Bible. <laughs> See if you were awake. <laughs> give me a different Bible. <laughs> Mine doesn't have enough here. 2 Thessalonians 2.14. It was for this we call you to our gospel, that you may be in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's again the idea of the calling. 2 Timothy 1.9. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which has granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Again, that heavenly calling that, that we have as Christians, partakers of the heavenly calling. Let's go to verse 2, Hebrews 3, 2. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. And this sets up the next so many verses here, this idea of the house, the house of Jesus and the house of Moses. Uh, Carolyn, could you look up uh, Numbers 12, 7? Numbers. Numbers 12, 7. That's where we get this house of Moses. 
I'm pretty sure there's 12 chapters in Numbers. <laughs> Okay, there's Moses being faithful in God's house. And that that idea is what the author of Hebrews is using to make the argument that we're going to have in the next three or four verses. Moses was faithful in his house. And um, we find out that Jesus is also faithful to the one who appointed him. Both Jesus and Moses were faithful in their house. And so... There's another passage here that I'm going to look up. It's in 1 Chronicles 17, 14. And according to the scholars, this here is an allusion to that from the Septuagint, so it might be a little bit different in the Masoretic text. 1 Chronicles 17, 14. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne should be established forever. So, um, in the Septuagint, it says, I will, we're here where it says, I will settle him in my house. It says in the Septuagint, I will make him faithful in my house. Okay, um, Barb, could you look up 1 Samuel 2.35 in Diane? John 8:29 and Noel Ephesians 2:22. Yes. Judah, the king. Well, that's what that's kind of the beauty of the book of Hebrews. The book later on in Hebrews, the argument is going to be that Jesus is greater because he's not from the tribe of Levi. He's after the order of Melchizedek. And Levi was lesser than Melchizedek. Because Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And Levi was the descendant of Abraham. So the greater blessed the lesser. So it's very, to, you know, to us uh, 21st century Americans, you, you might think, well, can, why are they making a big deal about this? But you got to remember, this was Jewish people discussing this. And what mattered is how they thought and what was important to them. And what was important to them was who you're descended from and who's greater than whom was a very important thing. And so this argument that Melchizedek is the true high priest that comes from Psalm 110 and verse 4 and from the book of Genesis is very important. And so that's a good point. Moses was a Levite. And this is not belittling Moses. Verse 2 here is saying Moses was faithful, but Jesus is greater. Alright? And so Melchizedek's greater. Alright, um, 1 Samuel 2.35. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his house, and he will minister before me, anointed one always. So he was going to raise up a priest who would be in God's house and minister before him always. And I believe that the ultimate fulfillment of that is Christ as the high priest in, in, uh, before God forever. And, uh, Deuteronomy 18 says, The priests, the Levites, and all the tribes of the Levites shall have no part nor inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the offerings of the Lord made by fire of his head. Therefore, they shall have no inheritance among your brothers. The Lord is their inheritance. They didn't have a plot of land. No, they're, they're the priests of the Lord. He's the inheritance. Yep. yep. What a great inheritance. The land is fleeting. Okay, John 8, uh, 29. And he who sent me is with me. He who he has not sent me. I'm sorry. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Yeah, Jesus said, I always do the things that are pleasing to him, and he claims to be the sent one. Now, a sent one is an apostle. So Jesus is the great apostle, and who always perfectly pleased the Father. Ephesians 2.22 In whom you also are built into it for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. 
Yeah, that's another house analogy that we're part of this household or house or building that God is building. So that geez, the house that what we're going to see here is the house of that Jesus is building is the church. Right? And that we're part of Amen. So verse three says Hebrews three three for he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, just so much as the builder of the house is more honor than the house. Just kind of a truism, an interesting kind of Jewish argument. The key idea is that Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses in the same measure as God has more honor than the universe he created. Jesus is the creator and the builder of all things, and so therefore he has greater honor. So let's look up some verses on this. Pat, um, num- well, Pat, this one we already did, Numbers 12-7. That was the one that Carolyn had. And so, Pat, if you could look up Hebrews 2-9. Moses' house is referenced in the Old Testament. Okay, Hebrews 2-9. In putting everything under him, God does nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at the present, we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little more than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Yeah, it's talking about everything being under him ultimately. Uh, and so the greater one is Jesus. At the moment of transfiguration, did they have a little problem there? They wanted to build houses. To Moses and Elijah. Yeah, yeah, tabern- three tabernacles. God made a disappearance. Says no, listen to my son. Yep, the son is greater. One uh, Kathy, one Corinthians three nine, and Lois, one Peter two five through seven, and then I have a citation. I need to look up here. Okay, let me read this from Kistemacher. When a house or building is erected, people may admire the beauty of the structure and speak words of praise, but they reserve tribute and honor for the architect and for the builder. The architect and the builder stand figuratively figuratively above the structure they created. They stand on a different level. By analogy, the author says God is the architect, Jesus is the builder of God's house, Moses is a servant in God's house. Jesus constructs the spiritual house of God, Moses was a faithful servant in all God's house. Jesus is the founder of God's household, which had its beginning at the creation. Moses himself belongs to the household. In addition, the seat of honor at God's right hand belongs to Jesus. Jesus has been honored by God because through him God made the universe. So Jesus is the creator and the architect. Amen. Amen. That's where the New Age goes awry because they're worshiping the earth rather than the creator. Man worships the creation. Unless he's converted, they'll always worship man or some other created thing. Well, that must have been news to Moses that the Jews were claiming him, huh? After every miracle, they wanted to kill him. <laughs> and he come down from the mountain, and he had an orgy with a golden calf. They really were claiming on Moses. In fact, he said he was so worn out, instead of speaking to the rock, he hit the rock. He couldn't go in the promised land because they really were helping Moses a lot. So then they come in the end and start claiming Moses and the prophets, which Jesus said they were the killers of. Well, that's what Stephen said. Yeah. Remember Stephen's speech in the book of Acts? He got in murder. He reminded them of that. They didn't like it. (laughs) They didn't like Stephen's. No. I mentioned that in my article. It's about this purpose-driven life. And I, in that article, one of the things I do is I take Stephen's speech and point out how he preached and and then just sort of said, you know, I wonder if Stephen would have read this book. He wouldn't have had to be martyred. <laughs> no, he didn't just tell him, I'm gonna, why don't you just come with me on this 40-day spiritual journey to find out your purpose? You think they're going to kill him for saying that? No, I don't think so. Too bad they didn't know about modern ways of preaching. Could have saved a lot of martyrs. <laughs> Let me invite you on a spiritual adventure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 1 Corinthians 3 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, but God's field, God's building. God's building. Yeah, 
And so the church is, is considered as a building. And so we're part of this house. 1 Peter 2, 5 through 7. Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a supernatural, uh, I'm sorry, a spiritual house. Spiritual house. holy priesthood to offer up a spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore, also, it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay a stone in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which he be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. Yeah, so the same analogy of the church is a, a house being built by the Lord, and Jesus the chief cornerstone. Okay, let's go to verse 4, Hebrews 3, 4. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And the word for builder there means creator. And this idea comes from Isaiah 40, 28, out of the Septuagint, or the Greek Old Testament that was in use even before the time of Christ, which is really amazing. Some of those things that happened 100 or 200 years before Christ ends up, end up being strong evidence for Messiah because it proves that the church didn't create certain things, that the ideas were already there in Judaism. For example, in the debate about the virgin birth, the early Jews were saying that um, Isaiah just prophesied about a young woman. There was nothing supernatural there. There was just uh, an ordinary event. But when the early church was debating about that, they pointed to the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, that used the term virgin. And, and Jewish scholars had made that translation. And so they could argue, well, your own scholars believe that meant a virgin and that it was supernatural. We didn't make that up. The Septuagint was around a long time before the church. And um, it ended up being evidence for some of these ideas. And so the New Testament is using that old Old Testament Greek translation many times. And some people have questioned that. So why are they using the Greek uh, Bible, which is not really the inspired one. The inspired one is the Masoretic text, the Hebrew Bible. This is a translation just like our English is a translation from the Greek. So people ask that. Well, simple fact that two facts. Number one, the Jews accepted it as God's word. They believed it had supernatural origin. So if you quoted it to them, they never questioned it. At least we found it early on. And number two, you're writing in Greek, why not use something in the very language you're using? If I'm writing an article in English, I usually quote the English Bible. Right? It only makes sense. Why would I quote a different, something from a different language when I'm writing in English? I mean, I'll occasionally use the Greek if, it, if there's some reason why I think it needs to bring out a point, but I, simply, I use the English Bible. So they use the Greek Bible as what they're writing in. So that's my answer to that, in case anybody ever wants to know. Why are they quoting the Septuagint? Yesterday I was at Walgreens over in Hennepin, and uh, the man that was helping me find something, he had his name tag on, and I went to thank him, and I looked, and it was printed in uh, Chinese. He was Chinese, and it was printed in Chinese. And that's, a, that's a lot of help. I can't say <laughs> Thank you, whatever that is. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how people understand that language. Now, that's something I don't know how you can... But it's amazing how people read that. I'm going to give you a special treat today. we got 15 minutes of John MacArthur preaching about the God, what the gospel is all about and why it's important. And... I just want you to know how powerful this is. It's from this series, Hard to Believe, that I've been telling you about. And I hope you like it as much as I do. It's really inspired me. And I'm trying to listen to him more so I can learn how to be a better preacher. Are you doing fine? Well, you've got to keep trying harder. You've got you to learn something in your old age. Well, we find ourselves at the heart of the message of Jesus. Luke chapter 9, we're looking 
at a paragraph that begins in verse 23 and really runs down to verse 26. We'll see how verse 27 is connected later. These are the words of Jesus that are at the very heart of his gospel. Let me read the text to you. Chapter 9, verse 23. Luke writes, And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. The gospel according to Jesus Christ given in the New Testament is radically different from the typical modern message that is so often preached. In our contemporary times, evangelists often portray Jesus as a somewhat frustrated would-be redeemer who stands outside anxiously awaiting an invitation from someone to come into his life. This is, uh, I think, because of a misrepresentation of a text in the book of Revelation in which the Lord says he stands at the door and knocks. It's not really a true interpretation to make that the door of a human heart. It's the door of the church. It's Christ wanting to come in to his church in the context there. But based on that verse, we have sort of portrayed Jesus as waiting for an invitation from us. Waiting for an opportunity from us. Standing quietly as it were by until we make the decision to invite him in. But in reality, the New Testament presents Christ as the inviter. The Savior who comes into the world, God in human flesh who invades the realm of humanity, who confronts sinners, challenges them, calls them, commands them to come to Him, to believe in Him, to turn from sin, to embrace Him as Savior and Lord. Rather than waiting for an invitation from sinners, He issues His own invitation to sinners, in the form of a command to repent and to believe and to submit. This is essentially what he is saying in our text. This is at the very core of Jesus' message, the gospel message. If you want eternal life, if you desire to have all your sins forgiven forever, if you want to come into the eternal kingdom of God and receive blessing peace and joy forever and ever, Jesus says, here's what you need to do. Look at verse 23. If anyone wishes to come after me, you want to follow after me, be my disciple, come into my kingdom, receive my forgiveness, here's what you must do. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, as we have been saying over the last couple of weeks looking at this passage, this is a gospel invitation. Jesus initiates the invitation to sinners, and he clarifies the terms self-denial, cross-bearing daily, and loyal, obedient following. Now, we have called this the principle that is at the heart of Jesus' message. And we have learned over the last couple of weeks that coming after Christ, becoming a disciple of Christ, receiving salvation, forgiveness, and eternal life, entering God's kingdom, calls for and demands self-suicide. 
the death of self. A willingness to embrace suffering, persecution, and maybe execution, which is pictured by the torturous cross, and does require submission. That is to say, becoming a Christian is not easy. Being saved is not easy. You don't just roll out of bed and find yourself in the kingdom of God. It was said of Matthew in his own gospel, as his story is reported, and he is the writer, that Jesus came by one day and saw him. He was a tax collector, the most despicable of all people in Jewish society, a Jew who had sold his soul to Rome for money. Jesus came along and amazingly said to Matthew, follow me. Matthew records his own response. He did that. He walked away from his profession, which he could never return to, since a tax franchise was a very desirable thing by traitorous Jews. And once Matthew abandoned his post, somebody would have been immediately taking his place. He never would have been able to go back. And so he did forsake his career and all that went with it. In fact, when Luke tells the story of Matthew's conversion, Luke adds in chapter 5, verse 28, that he left everything behind. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. If you're going to come after me, if you want to be one of mine, belong to me, be saved from sin, be in my kingdom, it will cost you everything. You walk away from everything. And what do we mean by that everything? We're talking about those things that are a part of self. In fact, a good way to understand what that means is to drop down to verse 25. For well, what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? This is hyperbole. This is impossible, of course. No one person could literally possess the entire world. But what if you could? What if you could have everything that the world has? What would you have? Well, this is what you have according to 1 John 2.15. All that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And it's all passing away, and it's all perishing. And if that's what you want, you can't have God. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So what are we talking about when we talk about the world? All that your passions hunger for, all that your eyes covet, and all that your pride demands. What if you got all of it? What if you had every lust fulfilled, every vision acquired, and every self-aggrandizement available, every honor won? What would it matter? If you got all of that in time and lost your soul eternally, how much is your soul worth? So, Jesus, when he says, let him deny himself, is basically saying, deny everything that yourself longs for in the world. Because... If you could gain the whole world, you'd make a bad bargain because it would cost you your soul. So this is how it is. You have lived, all men do, driven by the passions of desire to fulfill their bodily desires, driven by the passions of vision, coveting what they can see, driven by the immense desire to be honored, rewarded, esteemed, 
to be powerful, all that pride envelops. This is how we all live our lives. And that's exactly what you have to give up. You have to say, I no longer care about what my lust craves. I no longer care about what my eyes see. I no longer care about what my proud heart wants. In fact, as I look at it all, I see it as sin. And so I deny myself. To deny myself is to say no to all of those cravings that are part of the fabric of fallenness. So Jesus says, here's the principle. If you want to come after me, you deny yourself. You say, I no longer will live for my own bodily lusts. I no longer will live for the things I can see. I no longer will live for my own self-glorification. And I am willing to deny myself. And if need be, I will even give my life in death on a cross. And I commit myself to follow obediently. That's the gospel of Jesus. That's what he's calling for. It's an attitude of penitence, repentance, brokenness, contrition, poverty of spirit, sense of your own bankruptcy, mourning, meek, sorrowful over your sin. It's the level of desperation that beats in the chest and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It says, in my flesh is no good thing. This is the heart of Jesus' message. And if a sinner is going to come after Jesus into the kingdom, it's going to be in an absolute and total abandonment of himself. And we've been looking at that in the last couple of weeks. Now, this is paradoxical, as verse 24 says. So we've gone from the principle to the paradox. Verse 24 says, Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who will save it. That's the paradox. In order to gain your life eternally, you have to give your life up. If you hold on to your life, that is, if you hold on to your life in the world and you do not want to give up your lusts and your longings and your desires and your pride, you will forfeit your eternal soul. The only one who enters my kingdom is the one who gives himself up. This teaching of Jesus, by the way, is not certainly isolated to this portion of Luke. It is scattered throughout all the Gospels, all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record Jesus teaching this. The words are the same in some other places, and they vary in some other places. Jesus gives this message time and time again in various places and events. This is at the heart of his Gospel. And the question is, if you want salvation, are you willing to give up the earthly for the heavenly? Are you willing to give up the kingdom of men for the kingdom of God? Are you willing to give up the temporal for the eternal? Are you willing to give up the sinful for the holy? I know that's not easy. And the gospel has to be presented on that basis. Today we want to make it as easy as possible. And so we have this poor, sad Jesus waiting there for some sinner to come to his senses and invite him in. That's just not going to happen. It's frankly impossible for any sinner to do that, to awaken himself from the dead, to give sight to his blind eyes, hearing to his deaf ears, and soften his hard heart. It's not easy to become a Christian. In fact, it's impossible. In fact, it's actually a violent experience. Let me show you another passage of Scripture that fits perfectly into this, that will illustrate what our Lord is saying here. Turn to the seventh chapter of Matthew, which of course gets us in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, the greatest evangelistic sermon ever. And in the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus is presenting his message, his gospel, he gives an invitation at the end, in verse 13, by way of a command. Matthew 7:13. Enter. He's telling them to come into the kingdom. Enter. That's a command. By the narrow gate. 
For the gate is wide, and the way is broad, that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow, that leads to life, and few are those who find it. No passage in Scripture more clearly and directly attacks the modern kind of easy believism with more power than this passage. This is not a very encouraging passage for those who think they're forgiven and saved from hell by some casual belief in the facts about Jesus Christ. These closing words of the Sermon on the Mount are pure gospel. They are as pointed an invitation as has ever been issued. And the hearer is faced with a choice. And the choice is not a momentary decision to be forgiven and to go to heaven. The choice is a choice that has eternal implications. And lifelong ones as well. Choice is pretty simple. Two gates. One is wide and one is narrow. Two roads, one is broad and one is narrow. Two destinations, one is life, the other is destruction. Two crowds, one is many and the other is few. Later on in this text, Jesus speaks of two trees, one with fruit and one without. Two builders, one whose building collapses, the other whose building stands in two foundations, one of sand and one of rock. Well, there's a good choice. <laughs> two, two, two. Well, um, I was thinking about this uh, message when I was writing about this uh, wide gate that uh, Rick Warren has, a purpose-driven life. And um, so I reference uh, MacArthur's book because Warren just says, say this little prayer... And if you're sincere, then you're saved. And uh, let's go on. And, you know, we can't, I, I think that we try to make it easy when, in fact, it's not hard, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so the gospel depends on the power of God and uh, to, re- to regenerate and not man be religious. <laughs> 